Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative, and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at www.nakubo.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Nakubo in Brief. I'm Megan Strand, your host for today, and I would like to thank you so much for tuning in. I'm excited to be here today with Ruhl Hammerschlag, who is an energy and climate policy analyst with Hammerschlag and Company. And today we're going to talk about climate action plans. Welcome, Ruhl. Hi, Megan. Good to be here. Let's start out by having you explain what a climate action plan even is, and then maybe tell us a little bit about your background in helping people implement these plans. Sure. Um, a climate action plan is a document that uh, states and organizations or an institution's uh, emissions of greenhouse gases and the plans they have to reduce those. And generally, any operating procedures or intentions th- that enable that institution to get to, to its goals of greenhouse gas reductions. I'm an independent consultant who helps large, large institutions and small governments measure and reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. I've been doing that since 1999 and um, have a wide variety of clients in, in uh, education and nonprofit government and, and for-profit as well. In 2005, I was a mid-career graduate student at the uh, Evans School of Public Affairs at the University of Washington, and they needed their first greenhouse gas inventory done. And that began a a long consulting relationship with the university that is continuing today. As you mentioned, you've been helping the UW implement their climate action plan. So tell us a little bit about your work with the University of Washington. Where did you start? Where have how how much have you progressed? Where are you now? What do you still have to do? The beginning was in two thousand well two thousand six or seven when when we did the two thousand five greenhouse gas inventory. So. The, the greenhouses the greenhouse gases are always inventoried after the fact, so generally done the, the next year, looking back on the prior year. The University of Washington signed the, the ACUPUC, the American College and University President's Climate Commitment, in 2007. And at that point, they knew they needed to have a climate action plan as a part of that commitment. So, uh, so they had me help help lead the effort to create that climate action plan, which which we did, and it was published in 2009. And it sat dormant for quite a few years, um, not entirely dormant, but it, it's climate action plans are, are a little intimidating because virtually everything an entity does emits greenhouse gases, either directly or indirectly. So it's a massively complex undertaking to make good on them. And so in, in roughly in 2013, about four years or so after the plan was published, the University of Washington staff called me and said, hey, can you come in and, and get this thing moving? 
what what we ended up doing was creating a so-called marginal abatement cost curve mm-hmm. where 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 we lined up the various actions and how effective they were at reducing greenhouse gas emissions and how much they cost per ton of greenhouse gas emissions reduced. And, and that was the, that really got things going because it, it lined up all the options in a neat and understandable order. So you had, you had the planning phase and then you had this marginal abatement cost curve. And now are they in the stage where they're implementing some of the recommendations? Absolutely, yes. Uh, although I can say that the the cost curve lines up a little a, a little under forty different unique actions towards reducing greenhouse gases. And what's been interesting is the the, the sort of soft side of the process. The the politics and the committees seem to favor lumping multiple actions together and perceiving them as a larger initiative. And so there's several of those sort of groups of actions that, that are now moving forward quite, quite solidly. I want to talk a little bit more about the marginal abatement cost curve. So can you give us some examples of what might appear on a university's curve, for example? Well, there's, there's a very wide variety of things. That generally, the cheapest, um, the cheapest options will be things that have to do with energy efficiency, so opportunities to reduce energy consumption and energy con- energy is the primary uh, the, the the primary cause of greenhouse gases in, in for most universities, and so those actions will save energy and they'll be the cheapest. So in our case, there was especially a lot of work to do with laboratories, um, and and this was a neat piece of learning for me. I I learned that a lot of the energy costs of the ventilation systems in laboratories aren't the ventilation system itself, but the ventilation system sucks all the hot air out of the building. So you're constantly reheating the building when you have... Oh. Yeah, that, that, was a, that, I, that was such a surprise to learn how that worked. And once I got it, I, I saw why those laboratory emissions are so high. It suddenly all made sense. So in our case, um, for example, uh, having automatic closure of fume hood sashes and um, thinking about uh, variable air volume ventilation systems where the fan is not just turned on all the time and um, things like that uh, increase the energy efficiency in laboratories. And, And that will be common at almost all universities. And then uh, there are quite a number of items uh, that are about reducing commuting emissions. So getting students, or in our case, more so than students, staff and faculty on alternative uh, transportation modes other than single occupancy vehicles. And there's a large number of strategies to do that. Um, and so those are a couple of good examples. Also, um, we found a lot to do with um, reducing p- computing emissions. Um, so uh, there were a lot of servers and other uh, computing equipment distributed throughout the university, and those, those induce cooling loads in their surrounding spaces that, if consolidated, can be reduced a lot. With the University of Washington's Climate Action Plan, I'm assuming they're including greenhouse gas reduction goals? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, So in our case, 
The University of Washington is is a, a legally a, a state agency because it's a public university. And so in Washington state, we have law regulating the greenhouse gas emissions from state agencies. Mm-hmm. So so they're required to reduce their emissions 15% below 2005 levels by 2020, 36% below by 2035, and, and 57.5% by 2050. And that, that that odd number comes because they were trying to make it match a, a rounder number that is set for the whole state. But anyway, those are the numbers. And, and that's what the University of Washington has to meet. And we mostly focus on the 2035 goal in our planning because we're, we're going to be close to making the 2020 goal. But the 2035 goal is much deeper and it's going to be much, much harder for us to achieve. So now in 2016, just looking back at the work that you've done implementing this marginal abatement cost curve and starting to implement some of the recommendations, do you feel that this plan has led to significant change at the University of Washington? Absolutely. I, I, I was impressed with uh, how, how real it all, all got. Uh, I was mentioning the laboratories, and as a result of 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 the laboratories coming up in several of the of the recommended actions like i said several of those got wrapped together and uh a, an efficient laboratories initiative got launched um you know complete with uh seeking funding for two or three new st- uh staff to to do retro commissioning of buildings so that's happening um and there is a there is now an official policy from the top down um, for consoli- consolidating computing resources. So basically, small server facilities are are no longer permitted on the university campus, and all uh, all com- you know central computing facilities like that have to go into the into the uh, the the <laughs> the truly centrally maintained. Uh, facilities where there's a shared cooling load and and shared uh, uninterruptible power supply, and and um, and even the servers themselves get shared. They're, what used to be multiple machines are now on a single machine. Hmm. The reduction in electricity consumption is is massive. It's it's incredible what a huge difference it makes, and that's now an official policy. So. Um, yeah, we've really seen real change happen already. I want to take a little bit of a step back and just ask, why are we hearing so much about climate action plans? I've been noticing the resurgence in attention too. I think it's actually sort of a, 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 a rather than a, a positive effect of its own, a, a negative effect, if you will, of the lack of um, of of uh, legal action on the part of governments, climate change is becoming of greater and greater concern, and governments are continuing to fail to produce any significant regulation of greenhouse gases. And so, entities, universities, and, and you know, and other entities as well, are starting to pick up the ball of voluntary action again as they see nothing happening and. And I think that especially we're seeing that at universities, because the universities are one of the primary sources of the concern about how how serious of an issue climate change is. So there's a really strong awareness of the problem at universi- at, at universities, and because they're generally you know fairly 
large institutions, they have the ability to to make some change happen through voluntary effort. And I think that's that's my perception of why climate action plans seem to be getting a, a renewed strong attention right now. So this is obviously a podcast that is listened to by chief business officers. So for us, what do you think CBO should understand about climate action plans? First of all, they're they're very complex um, because every single thing that an institution does um, emits greenhouse gases. So understanding that having one is going to induce or require a lot of cooperation and collaboration between um, between the different parts of the university is probably one of the most important things to realize. And, and because of that, a climate action plan above all needs to be a foundation for future action. Mm. And, and in fact, in 2009, when we created the, the first climate action plan for the University of Washington, a lot of the UW staff I was work were I was working with said, you know, this this can't really be a plan. It needs to be a plan to plan. And I was I was a little upset at the time. I said I said you're kicking the can down the road. But now in hindsight, they they were right. It's just such a complex animal that the climate action plan needs to lay down a strong but very high-level framework that allows something like, in our case, we made that marginal abatement cost curve, mm-hmm. uh, that allows the university to do that finer, detailed work within a large but firm, greater structure. What's been the biggest challenge that you've faced in trying to get all of this implemented and moving forward? Well, I can think of two. One of them Uh, is split incentives. So what that means is that um, a given action would cost a a lab or a department money to implement, but the financial benefit of the action goes to the central administration. So, you know, we we run a a central power plant, and if a lab or department does some work to, uh, to make their facility more energy efficient, it's just the central administration of the university that operates the power plant that gets the financial benefit. So therefore, the the lab or or department doesn't have the incentive to make the change. Mm-hmm. And and this this showed up in that computer equipment example I mentioned as well. Right. So so that's been definitely the hugest barrier, save maybe for the the other one that came to mind. Which is that there's there's a little bit of a of fear to to regulate faculty. So any university generally prides itself on on giving their faculty you know reign to be free. You know they're they're free thinkers. That's what a university is supposed to be. The idea or the concept of laying down an institutional law on those faculty is very difficult to swallow. I mean, mean, both, of course, by the faculty themselves, but also by the staff who are accustomed to giving faculty as much freedom as possible. But the fact is, for some of these things, you do need to lay down that kind of law. And, um, And that's been difficult. That has prevented many things from happening that could reduce greenhouse gas emissions as well. Those are the two things that I've really noticed as as important barriers to success. Well, and you're raising an important question for me, at least. And I'm curious about the structure 
at University of Washington that was placed around this climate action plan. Who is, who is participating and what kind of communication structure do they have in place to make sure this all sorts of keeps moving forward, obviously, with your assistance? There, There is a very clear structure at the University of Washington, and I, I think we're kind of blessed by that. In, in 2004, the president at the time created an environmental stewardship advisory committee in together with a, a, a uh, I'm sorry, I can't recall the name of the of the administrative instrument, but, you know, sort of an executive order. Uh, st- stating a environmental stewardship policy for the university, mm-hmm. and so so that committee was in existence before um, the ACUPUC got signed. So mm-hmm. it's been there all along. It did get restructured at one point, but it's still there. It's an advisory body um, in legal structure. So. They don't set policy per se, but they recommend policy um, to the senior level administration of the university. And then they also, again, the Environmental Stewardship Committee also has spun off a, a Climate Action Plan Policies Committee and or subcommittee. And that's a group of, so the, the whole Stewardship Committee is, I, I don't know, officially it's probably up to 30 members um, and uh, but then the the climate action plan policy committee that's um, roughly eight or so eight or nine that's who I work with on a regular basis and then and then the policy committee brings things back to the entire stewardship committee and then the stewardship committee essentially you know gives input and and then approves what, what the the policy committee submitted and then that goes to the president and the provost. And so, that, so that's the process we've been using in it. It, it has it, it has soft edges. It, 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 there's a lot of going, a lot of opportunity to go back and forth and to work on an informal level before things go to the to the president and provost. And that seems to work pretty well for for the University of Washington. And what types of people are on that smaller policy committee? You don't have to tell me everyone, but we have the the um, power plant manager, the, the facility manager for the power plant. We have a um, we actually we have two financial folks, one focusing on the power plant and one in the planning and budgeting um, sector. And the the power plant guy, um, he also uh, works with all the budgeting and costs for uh, all the um, facilities management. So all that efficiency stuff I was talking about before, it's under his leadership to look into those costs. So that person is there. We have um, the lead facilities person from each of our two satellite campuses there. We have one in Tacoma and one in Bothell. We have the uh, we have a vice president from the budgeting and planning division um, who is effectively the lead of that group. And she has had an interest in in this topic for uh, years and years, and um, and I believe she sits on the a, 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 sorry, is it pronounced H uh, board? I think that that 
yeah, can't 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 think right off the bat who else is. I definitely missed. Yeah, no, that that gives us a good a good idea of yeah, sort of who sits on the on that smaller policy committee. So, any final words of advice, rule to a CBO who is adopting or maybe attempting to implement their university's climate action plan? And these can be lessons from University of Washington, and I know you work with other clients too. So feel free to throw in any other general lessons that you feel like people should be paying more attention to in the university setting. Let's see. Uh, sort of on the fine scale, I can say that you're going to discover that um, your energy source for the campus, whatever it is, is probably going to be your number one leverage point in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So whatever the plan does, that is going to end up being a focus and, and you should be ready for that. And commuting will be th- another huge focus and very difficult to manage. And, um, and I would recommend stepping up to that commuting challenge right away because the, the, the energy thing in a certain way is easy to handle. It's, it's a very black and white kind of topic and commuting is the opposite. And I know we all had a tendency to shy away from dealing with a commuting because it was just too scary, but you have to. (laughs) So that's a piece of advice. I just want to repeat what I said about um, it's it's hard for a university a university to um, deploy institutional policy to to lay down the law as it were for faculty, but that's necessary in order to essentially price carbon, which is what you need to do one way or another. Mm-hmm. To, um, to induce emissions and that has to be an institutional decision and, and that's going to be that's going to be a big challenge too. Quantification of the emissions and and their costs has been extremely important for us because it it sets again because you're working in a university context there's a certain demand for you know science-based decision making. And so that quantification is really important. And yet at the same time, you know, once we did our quantification, it was uh, politics had a lot to do with which actions we ended up lumping together and moving forward. You will find yourself with a a balancing act between the quantification and the internal politics necessary to make certain things work. And but both of them are absolutely essential to to pay attention to because, because without the quantification you don't get the buy-in and without the politics you, you can't move anything forward. Yep. Oh, and one thing I didn't mention in our conversation before that's certainly going to come up is uh, if you've set goals as a part of your climate action plan, which in most universities will be the case. Um, the question is going to come up, if we can't reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, can we buy greenhouse gas offsets to do so? And that is, I could, um, I would be happy to have seven or eight additional podcasts with you about <laughs> that topic. <laughs> so um, beware that that's a, that's a very complex topic and also will come up. So I guess it sounds like my bottom line is complexity, isn't it? I guess. Be ready for complexity. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rule, for joining me today to share your expertise on climate action plan and at least just give us a scratch the surface look at some of these complexities. Well, you're welcome. And it it was a pleasure to talk about something that that, uh, has been a focus of of my work for years now. And it's it's been great working with the university on on this topic. It's it's a great platform for 
learning learning about and doing something about greenhouse gas emissions. You can find out more about today's episode by visiting the distance learning section of nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Rule and myself, I'd like to thank you for joining us for this episode of Nakubo in Brief. Mm-hmm.